Hello and welcome to A View in Focus, the show where we talk with entrepreneurs from technology startups and high growth companies. We'll get to hear their stories about entrepreneurship, leadership, strategy, management, and fundraising. I'm your host, Dino De Palma, managing partner at True North Advisory, where we work alongside entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and PE firms as their strategic advisors. In today's episode, we'll get a chance to connect with a longtime friend and a partner at True North, Scott Halfpower. Welcome, Scott. Scott uh, had been the CTO and co-founder of Broadsoft, where he ran uh, product as a CTO for over 20 years. So, Scott, welcome to A View in Focus. It's uh, great to spend some uh, time with you one-on-one. We do a lot of this with work, but this is a little bit of a different venue, so I'm excited to, to get to know you a little better. Thanks, Dino. So, you know, Scott, we, we've known one another, we've collaborated, we've worked together across Acme and Broadsoft, then at Broadsoft, and now at True North. Uh, but you know, one of the questions we've been asking to our guests is we don't know who Scott was when, you know, Scott was a child. Where'd you grow up? What'd you do? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I grew, <clears throat> I grew up in uh, South Louisiana. So um, in Lafayette, Louisiana, I was born there, grew up there, went to college there. Um, and Lafayette's known as kind of the heart of Cajun country. So if you're familiar with Cajun food, that's that's where I'm from, and that's where I grew up. Did you pick up any French while you were there? You know, I uh, I took French, and uh, my French teacher asked me to uh, not take French anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't very good at it, and uh, I was asked to uh, take something else. Okay, so... Um... Uh, I'll stick to the French, and you'll stick to the Cajun cooking. Did you uh, did you play any sports? Like, what what did you do for fun growing up? Um, well, you know, you know, I um, when I graduated high school, I was uh, five foot eight. Oh, wow. and then uh, if you know me now, I'm six foot two. Yeah. So, in in a matter of about three months, probably about April to about August, right after I graduated high school, I grew six inches. So um, I was too small to, to really play any competitive sports, but uh, I enjoyed playing basketball and, uh, and soccer when I was growing up. And did you have, like, what's your family like? Do you have any siblings growing up? Um, tell us yeah, a little bit about that. I have one brother, Sam, and Sam was with us at uh, Broadsoft. That's right. He came on pretty early on, probably about a year after we started. And he ran all of the um, engineering team at Broadsoft. And, you know, as you speak about Broadsoft, you've had obviously a very successful uh, career as CTO and, and co-founder at, uh, at, at Broadsoft. But, you know, how did you get started in, in this industry? Give us a little bit of, a, of uh, enlighten us a little, even for our listeners and younger entrepreneurs. Like, how did you get going? How did you know? This is what you wanted to do. Uh, give us a little bit of a roadmap there, if, if you'd like. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm not sure my my story's kind of uh, not all that exciting, but um, we, uh, my my wife and I, had our first uh, baby um, in 1994, and uh, she was working as an occupational therapist at a at a hospital. And then we had the baby. She took some time off and decided she she didn't really want to go back. So um, she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. 
So uh, that was fine, but uh, I needed to find another job to make a little bit more money. So um, I looked around and I found a job with a, a startup company um, that was doing cellular uh, networking equipment. And I was working at Nortel BNR and I was doing that type of thing. And this was a smaller company kind of with a different focus. So I took that job and uh, I built up a team and we built a product. And um, that's where I met Mike. Mike came on to, to run uh, the entire engineering team and I was running a part of it. And then that company got acquired um, by a larger company, which then got acquired by even a bigger company. And um, a bigger company decided that uh, our products were redundant with what they had. Um, the bigger company was Alcatel and they already had a lot of the cellular networking products that we were building. So um, Mike and I found ourselves in a, in, in, a, in a good situation, actually. We got about a year and a half of severance. Um, all of our stock options that we had were vested out. And um, so we, we found ourselves in a position where we didn't really have to find a job immediately. And um, the former CEO of the company, the smaller company, had went on to become a venture capitalist at Bessemer Ventures. And uh, he approached Mike and I and offered us um, some seed money if we wanted to do our own thing. And um, our attitude was like, you know, we can give that a shot. It doesn't work out. It doesn't work out. No big deal. You know, we we still got a, a, some runway if, if, if we want to give this a shot. So we got about half a million dollars and um, we didn't really have a, a big idea of what we wanted to do. We knew we wanted to do voice over IP and, um, excuse me, um, but we didn't really have the specific idea in mind. So we took the money and uh, we started working on the idea. And most people at the time were doing infrastructure, things like gateways, and we decided to focus more on applications. Yeah, because everyone was, uh, during those days, everyone was, was uh, working on the sauce, which, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so applications were great. Uh, the only problem was is that, you know, what was between the application and, and kind of the, the network was a little fuzzy at the time. And um, it took us a while in the industry, a while for things to kind of solidify so we could actually deliver, you know, real products that, that provided value. Uh, you know, that's, and, and what were the early days like, you know, when you, you, you sort of just got going and you had a, a few employees, what, what, what environment, you know, because it, it sounds sounds like you obviously had, you know, good timing, a tremendous amount of hard work, but that combination needed that you and Mike could, could get going with Broadsoft. But tell us a little bit about the early days and, you know, everyone remembers uh, the, the heyday of Broadsoft, but what was it like early on? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, one of the, the challenges we had is Mike and I were both living in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, which isn't necessarily known for uh, high technology. It's probably known more for, for barbecue and, and blues, but, but certainly not high tech. So we knew we needed to, to move. And Mike grew up in Montreal. I grew up in South Louisiana, kind of on opposite ends of, uh, <laughs> of, of the continent. And uh, he, he was pretty interested in moving to Boston. I wasn't. 
Um, I suggested places like Dallas and Atlanta. He didn't really want to go there. So after some discussions and uh, kind of just working kind of remotely at different places, we decided on the Washington, D.C. area. So we uh, we landed in uh, in Reston, which is kind of the high tech part of the D.C. area. And um, we hired up about four or five people that we had worked with before. And um, those people were instrumental in, in building Broadsoft, by the way. They were the kind of some of the core people that, that we built the company around. So um, we were working kind of out of our apartments and houses and, and so forth for a while, which, which was kind of fun. But, you know, you start building up a few people, you need a real office. So I, I never forget this story. We, we went around and uh, with a real estate broker looking for some office space in 1999. And um, he took us around in the morning and then we went to lunch. We had looked at about three or four spaces and the, the broker asked, you know, hey, what do you guys think? And we were like, ah, you know, they were okay, but looking forward to what we're going to see this afternoon. And he's like, well, there's nothing. That, that's it. You know, you guys looked at everything that, that's open. So um, we were like, oh, wow. So he goes, well, you know, you guys could consider like crossing over the river into Maryland and, and taking a look there. And, um, you know, Maryland uh, is kind of one of those places where no one really talks about it. There's nothing good or nothing bad about Maryland. It's just kind of generic. And we were like, well, okay. So we're getting a little desperate and um, we finally found a space in, in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Um, we did sublease with a company doing age research and we shared uh, office space with them. They had a bunch of interesting lab equipment. So there were parts of the building you didn't really want to go into. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what that lab equipment was doing. <laughs> but uh, I think we got about two or 3,000 square feet. Um, we bought some third-hand cubes, um, put them together one night, and I guess at that time we probably had about ten people. And uh, you know, it was fun. We uh, we worked hard. Um, we spent a lot of time together. Um, you know, we were pretty young, so that was kind of kind of our life for a while. Yeah, and I don't think people realize who've done startups from from the ground up that. Uh whether you're the CTO, CEO, you know, CRO, that you're going to get your hands dirty. Like those titles are uh, really not that meaningful <laughs> early on. You, you sort of have to, 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 to do uh, anything that needs to be done. So it brings me to this question, you know, you started Rodsoft from the ground up. Um, how did your leadership change and evolve over time as, as you built a team? And, and how do you feel, um, you executed as, as a leader and the traits that needed uh, that you needed to be successful. Maybe walk our audience uh, through you know some of the areas that they'll they'll need to 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 look to to be able to become a successful leader uh, as they start from from the ground up. Yeah, that's a that's, that's a big question. <laughs> that's what we're here for, Scott. Big <laughs> questions. <laughs> oh, you know. I, before Broadsoft, you know, I was a, a software developer. I, I wrote code and, you know, moving into to Broadsoft, I quickly realized that I wasn't going to be able to do that anymore. 
and my role was going to be more of um, setting a direction, less on kind of actually the execution of it. So, you know, we were fortunate, like I said, to bring on board about five or six people who helped us kind of get things off the ground. And these were the guys that really did all the work. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time really kind of validating the vision, going out and talking with uh, customers and partners and trying to make sure that we were on the right track. So I think for me personally, you know, I really had to do some things that were outside of my comfort zone. And, um, you know, quite honestly, I wasn't very good at it, you know, when I got started, but, you know, with anything, the more you do it, the better you get. And, um, you know, as time went on, I realized that my job as a, as a leader was kind of setting a direction and, you know, helping the team kind of execute on it. But really, I had to kind of delegate and, and let go when, you know, let the team kind of do their thing. So, so you raise, you know, as you, one of the things that it makes me think of is, is innovation. So startups are obviously known uh, to be the most innovative. Uh, how did that progress through the broad soft journey where uh, it's easy, I wouldn't say easy, but to be innovative when you're seven, eight, nine, ten people, as you mentioned, uh, there's a certain way of doing it. How, how did you do it at scale? When did you decide to say, okay, now we're going to actually start making acquisitions versus just building it ourselves? Walk us through those challenges as the com company uh, at Broadstaff continued to, to grow at scale. Yeah, I think one interesting thing I, I found through my career is with with innovation is that it, you know sometimes you can be your own worst enemy and and telling yourself that something's not possible or you can't do something or it's too hard. And I found in my role. I would tell the team that this is what we're going to do and you know sometimes the, the team really didn't know how to do it but if you were confident and you you know you push forward chances are they would just figure it out right and they would do some some pretty amazing things now the downside of that is sometimes you run into situations where you know you go home at night and uh you're having a hard time getting to sleep because you you know you you may have done something that you just can't get out of. And, you know, we certainly had situations like that at Broadsoft where I lost a lot of sleep over some decisions that, you know, could have been really bad and set us back six or 12 months. Um, luckily, you know, we didn't, we were able to kind of work through those types of things. And, and when you went through the, some of those, those, those challenges and you were obviously, you know, had sleepless nights, uh, how did you manage sort of the morale of the team, the cultures that continue to grow to keep the team excited, you know, uh, for, for the mission uh, at hand? And we all know startups, everyone is working uh, at times ungodly hours. How, how did you manage that part of of the process? Well, yeah, and, and, you know, like I said before, I think as, you know, my job as leader, you know, I, I was ultimately responsible for the, you know, the, the big decisions, the macro level decisions. And I was accountable, you know, if it, if it worked, the, the team took the credit. If it didn't work, it was, it was on me. And, you know, you know, as a, <laughs> as a founder of the company, I think if you're not willing to accept that, you're, you're kind of in the wrong role, but 
you know, anything bad that happened was my fault. Yeah, I... <laughs> anything good that that happened it was a team, and um, you know, I but I I think that was also a way of letting the team know that you know I had their back, and you know, if anything went wrong, we were just, you know, it, it, it was on me. I would I would take that responsibility, and and we would just figure it out. And when you were trying to figure out uh, what to do, we talked about, you know, make versus buy, but even just maybe hone in a little on the requirements. Uh, you had your market, you know, uh, broader macro requirements. But I know at Rodsoft, just like at, at Acme, we had, you know, quite a few customer requirements that were pulling in. How did you balance the customer demands uh, versus the broader market uh, requirements as you built out your, your product outlook? I think one thing, and, and both Mike and I believe in this and, and did a lot of this, is we would go out and see our, our customers directly and hear from them directly what they needed. Um, so we didn't really rely on our sales team to kind of translate it for us. You know, if there was a, a request and it was significant, you know, we'd go out and hear firsthand. And, you know, sometimes we were able to work around it. Um, but sometimes, you know, if you wanted the business, you just had to, you had to do certain things. And, you know, I think you don't want to take too much of a left turn and kind of go off, go off your, your charted path, but, you know, some opportunities you, you just have to do what you have to do. I, I know like when we won Verizon, it, we had to do a special project and it, it didn't really end up going anywhere and. I guess you could argue it was a waste of time, but but what it did do is it 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 built confidence that Verizon believed that we could do what we said we were going to do, even though they didn't use that particular piece of the work that we did. They used our bigger product, but you know it. We had to prove ourselves, and sometimes that's the kind of stuff you got to do. And and to that like to to, to that point, uh, when is it? timing how do you know that you know a certain direction is not working you need to call it quits you need to pivot um you know we always talk about our successes very often in these type of um podcasts or when we're, we're chatting even among friends but how did you know okay this is simply not going to work it's time to pivot uh we made the wrong customer acquisition this is the wrong development we need to change how, how did you deal with those challenges oh yeah i mean like i said those are the the things that you lose sleep over, right? And I think earlier, you know, the earlier you are in, in your your startup evolution, you know, the bigger impact those kind of things have, right? As as the years go on, those things don't have as uh, as big of an impact. And I always thought of it as kind of a kind of a waveform, you know, you you have your ups and downs, but early on the ups are higher and the downs are lower. And as time goes on, it kind of dampens a little bit. But, um, you know, there were some, definitely some areas where, where, you know, you had to just make a decision and stick to it and, you know, hope that you made the right decision. And, you know, teaching topics a little, uh, you went through an interesting journey where you were a startup, you continued to grow, you then went public, you were a public company, um, and then ultimately uh, were acquired by Cisco. Maybe 
give us um, some of the lessons learned, uh, some of the challenges as you move from a smaller startup to a public company and then ultimately being acquired. Just tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I think it was, you know, you you sort of had to, to move into doing different things. And like I said before, I think, you know, you had to move outside of your comfort zone and your, your you know, your job changes. And sometimes it's not necessarily things you like to do or want to do, but it's, it's what needs to be done. And, you know, I think you, you sort of have to take that attitude that, you know, sometimes your job's to do what no one else really wants to do. Or, <laughs> and you have to just kind of step up. But I think for me personally, you know, especially as we became a public company, you know, you had to participate more um, with with that and, and spend time with investors and, and, you know, be able to clearly articulate the vision and the direction of the company you had to go out and talk with customers. You had to instill confidence, share them, you know, with them where you're gonna, where you're taking the the products and the direction of the company. You know, and a lot of times I felt that my job was more about just giving our customers and our partners confidence, right? You know, they would look at me, and you know, if if I was confident and I believed in it, then they would believe in it, and you know, that meant that we had to be on airplanes a lot and fly all over the place and spend a lot of time with people. And, you know, flip side of that is I had to really, you know, build a good team, delegate a lot and, and let the team kind of go and figure out the details. And how would you coach, um, you know, when you CTO very often, uh, the travel or meeting directly with customers is is a little more of a challenge, right? It's more of a sales role often or a go-to-market role. How would you coach someone to say it's critical that you go meet with the customer directly to hear their requirements and understand their, their needs if that's potentially not in, in the person's uh, DNA? How, how would you coach that? I think, you know, I, I was always a big proponent of doing that, and I would send my team out to do that quite a bit. And you know, almost everyone when they start, they're, they're really bad at it. You know, they don't they don't know how to handle themselves. They don't know what to do, and you have to have a little bit of patience, um, and you have to give some advice and some guidance along the way. And but almost without exception, you know, after doing it for a couple of years, people people got good at it, right? And and they were able to to go and have workshops and and kind of just do it on their own without really any interaction. So I think a little bit for, for me, it was just having some patience and, you know, kind of knowing that the person could do it, but you kind of have to take it one step at a time. And, you know, you work with them on, a, on an agenda, you sit with them in the meetings, you kind of give them some coaching and, but you got to let them do it. And sometimes they'll mess it up and, you know, you just fix it. But, you know, I think that that's also how you scale, right? You have to develop people and, and so that they can go and do things without you. Yeah, no question. Uh, this is, a, and, and from a, a Cisco perspective, a little insight maybe on um, 
the acquisition itself, how challenging was that on the team as far as the demands of what was asked, the information you needed to, to, to produce? And the reason I ask the question is, as you're building the organization, do you have any guidance on systems you should use to make sure that if those bigger acquisitions happen, that, that you're ready for them? Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, I think for us, we were always pretty good at, at, you know, capturing what we did and we had pretty good processes and documentation. Um, you know, and I think as we built the company up, it's, it's always a challenge to know how much processes and systems to, to put into place. And you start to have to kind of take it one step at a time. You know, when you're, when you're 10 guys, you know, processes aren't that important. When you're a hundred, they're, they're certainly more important. And when you're a thousand, well, you got to have a lot. So I think, you know, that, that was an area where we just kind of incrementally grew it over time. And by the time the acquisition came, we were in pretty good shape. You know, I, I don't think there were really, it wasn't that hard to, to kind of go through the due diligence. Um, I think what was harder for us is, we were used to doing things a certain way and, you know, you go into a larger organization that does things a different way. It's, it's difficult to assimilate, right. And, um, two different cultures and, you know, how do you put those two things together? How do you work within that bigger organization? And that's, uh, that's challenging. No, no question. Um, so maybe you know as, as we're wrapping up, can you anything you, you you feel comfortable sharing? Any any crazy stories during the, the broadsoft days that uh, still make you uh, laugh a little at, at night that uh, the audience could hear? <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a lot of stories. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them that I was a part of, but you know, friends and family here. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I, I think one of the most, uh, the, one of the things that I always look back and it, it was quite a stressful situation, but right after Cisco acquired Broadsoft, we had probably our biggest outage. Um, it was at Comcast. And I guess at the time we, Comcast had about a little over 4 million seats on the, the, the Broadworks platform and it was running, um, all of their micro business customers, you know, so it was probably a million and a half, two million micro businesses. And um, we had a pretty bad outage that took out kind of the whole network. And um, as you can imagine, Comcast was pretty upset. It uh, it made the six o'clock news. <laughs> it was on national news. <laughs> Never good. You know, in, in some ways, I was kind of proud of that, but it <laughs> kind of scared the, the crap out of me. But, but you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, at Comcast, it went all the way up to the CEO and the CTO. And, you know, we were on calls every couple of hours. And I was, I was very proud of the team on how they managed that, because sometimes it's not necessarily how fast you fix a problem. But you know the the character you have and and how you kind of hold yourself during the situation, and um, I always proud of the team on how they kind of manage that whole thing because it took us about three or four days to kind of get it sorted out and everything back to normal. So it it wasn't like a quick fix. It was um, quite a quite a challenging problem, and um, 
but I always remember that because I, I don't think I slept very much in the I'm sure. three or four days. So. <laughs> well, as, as a priest who married Anne, Lisa and I would, would say, you've got to be there in the good times and, and the not so good times. I think one of the lessons learned is, 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 you know, challenging time, but your team and you stepped up and were there for them every, every step of the way, which I, I think that's a, a great message uh, to, to the teams out there. Actually, I'm getting together with my uh, with my team, and um, not this weekend, but next. So we're uh, we're all getting together for a weekend. So I still, you know, we're still good friends, and we hang out together. So I'm looking forward to to seeing everybody. Excellent. Well, Scott, uh, it's been a pleasure having you uh, join us today. It's a pleasure actually uh, working alongside you at uh, at True North. Um, so thank you for joining us today. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode. We'll be posting our episodes every other week and follow us on LinkedIn and other social media uh, avenues. So thank you once again. And uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully we'll have a follow-on with, uh, with Scott part two. So thank you. Thanks, Luna.